We want to welcome you to the Bible teaching ministry of Fellowship Bible Church, where our desire is to honor God by faithful obedience to His Word. If you want to understand the Bible better, please continue to listen as Pastor Matt Postiff explains and applies the biblical text one verse at a time. You can reach us with questions or for more teaching audio and print material at our website, fbcaa.org. You can also watch our services live at fbcaa.org live. We want to thank you for listening and pray that you will be edified. Join us now as Pastor Postiff opens God's Word. Acts chapter 19. And it happened while Apollos was at Corinth that Paul, having passed through the upper regions, came to Ephesus. And finding some disciples, he said to them, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? So they said to him, We have not so much as heard whether there be a Holy Spirit. And he said to them, into what then were you baptized? So they asked, they said, into John's baptism. Then Paul said, John indeed baptized with the baptism of repentance, saying to the people that they should believe on him who will come after him, and that is on Christ Jesus. When they heard this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus, and when Paul had laid hands on them, the Holy Spirit came upon them, and they spoke with tongues and prophesied. Now the men were about twelve in all, and he went into the synagogues and spoke boldly for three months, reasoning and persuading concerning the things of the kingdom of God. But when some were hardened and did not believe, but spoke evil of the way before the multitude, he departed from them and withdrew the disciples, reasoning daily in the school of Tyrannus. And this continued for two years, so that all who dwelt in Asia heard the word of the Lord Jesus, both Jews and Greeks. Now God worked unusual miracles by the hands of Paul so that even handkerchiefs or aprons were brought from his body to the sick and the diseases left them and this evil spirits went out of them. Then some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists took it upon themselves to call the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits, saying, we exercise you by this Jesus whom Paul preaches. Also, there were seven sons of Sceva, a Jewish chief priest who did so. And the evil spirit answered and said, Jesus, I know, and Paul, I know, but who are you? Then, the man in whom the evil spirit was leaped on them, overpowered them, and prevailed against them so that they fled out of the house naked and wounded. This became known both to all Jews and Greeks dwelling in Ephesus, and fear fell on all of them. 
and the name of the Lord Jesus was magnified. And many who had believed came, confessing and telling their deeds. Also, many of those who had practiced magic brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. And they counted up the value of them, and it totaled 50,000 pieces of silver. So the word of the Lord grew mightily and prevailed. When these things were accomplished, Paul purposed in the spirit would he have passed through Macedonia and Achaia to go to Jerusalem, saying, After I have been there, I must also see Rome. So he went into Macedonia. So he sent into Macedonia two of those who ministered to him, Timothy and Erastus. But he himself stayed in Asia for a time. And about that time there, arose a great commotion about the way. For a certain man named Demetrius, a silversmith, who made silver shrines of Diana, brought no small profit to the craftsmen. He called them together with the workers of similar occupations and said, Men, you know that we have our prosperity by this trade, Moreover, you see and hear that not only at Ephesus, but also throughout almost all Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned many away many people, saying that they are not gods which are made with hands. So not only is this trade of ours in danger of falling into disrepute, but also the temple of the great goddess. Diana may be despised and her magnificence destroyed when all Asia, whom all Asia and the world worship. Now when they heard this, they were full of wrath and cried out saying, great is Diana of the Ephesians. So the whole city was filled with confusion and rushed into the theater with one accord having seized Gaius and Aristarchus, Macedonians, Paul's travel companions. And when Paul wanted to go in to the people, the disciples would not allow him. Then some of the officials of Asia, who were his friends, sent to him, pleading with him that he would not venture into the theater. Some therefore cried one thing and some another, for the assembly was confused, and most of them did not know why they had come together. And they drew Alexander out of the multitude. The Jews put him forward, and Alexander motioned with his hand and wanted to make his defense to the people. But when they found out that he was a Jew, all with one voice cried out for about two hours, Great is Diana of the Ephesians. And when the city clerk had quieted the crowd, he said, Men of Ephesus, what man is there who does not know that the city of the Ephesians is temple guardian of the great goddess Diana and of the image which fell down 
from Zeus. Therefore, since these things cannot be denied, you ought to be quiet and do nothing rashly. For you have brought these men here who are neither robbers of temples nor blasphemers of your goddess. Therefore, if Demetrius and his fellow craftsmen have a case against anyone, the courts are open and they are proconsuls. Let them bring charges against one another. But if you have any other inquiry to make, it shall be determined in the lawful assembly. For we are in danger of being called in question for today's uproar. There being no reason which we may give to account for this disorderly gathering. Amen. Genesis 36, chapter 36 in Genesis, also 37. We'll look at Esau's lineage and Joseph's trouble this morning, the title of our message, and I'll be jumping ahead a little bit in terms of the lesson from the chapter that I've put there as the truth at the top of your notes. I was uh, thinking this morning, at, uh, not on this subject, but just another uh, one of our friends who has left this life, a fellow named Dan Sullivan, who uh, I think of when I hear that piano play there because he came every few months and tuned that piano. And so you all didn't know him probably, but uh, the Collins family knows uh, Dan, knew Dan, and, uh, and he's been at our home many times tuning our piano, and then here uh, tuning both church pianos. So remember the Sullivan family. I don't have any word on arrangements for that uh, circumstance yet, but um, do pray for them. His wife is Joyce, if you think to pray for her. First, the genealogy of Esau in chapter 36. It says, now this is the genealogy of Esau. Who is Edom? And then it goes through dozens of names, and I'm not going to uh, read them all. I'll spare you that. It's another of the genealogical chapters in Genesis. There's chapter 5 and chapters 10 and 11 with all the names, and uh, I encourage you to read through those at your uh, leisure sometime and uh, look at how the family tree is connected. The main point of this chapter, to me, seems to be this phrase at the beginning of, or end of verse 1, rather, Esau, who is Edom? Because you see that same phrase again in chapter uh, 36, verse 8. So Esau dwelt in Mount Seir. Esau is Edom. Now, why did he dwell in Mount Seir? Well, it tells us there in verse 6 that Esau took wives, uh, his wives, his sons, his daughters, and all the persons of his household, his cattle, and all his animals, and all his goods which he had gained in the land of Canaan, and went to a country away from the presence of his brother Jacob. For their possessions were too great for them to dwell together, and the land where they were strangers could not support them because of their livestock. So Esau dwelt in Mount Seir. Uh, this is a very similar thing that happened a couple generations earlier, isn't it? Do you remember when Abraham and Lot had to go their separate ways because their possessions were too great for them to be there together in that particular place? So Esau dwelt in Mount Seir, and it says Esau is Edom, again, a second time in chapter 36. Now look at verse number 19. 
The Bible says, these are the sons of Esau, who is Edom, and these were their chiefs. And then look again at verse 43. Chief Magdiel and Iram, these are the chiefs of Edom, according to their dwelling places in the land of their possession. And then it says, Esau was the father of the Edomites. Okay, so you ask, what's the big deal about that? Uh, Why repeat that over and over again, four times? I think that is the point of the chapter to introduce us to the people called the Edomites because we'll run into them many times in the future in our Bible reading. So we're introduced here to an important people group, and therefore that helps us understand the context of the Bible in which God has recorded for us this history. Um, And and after all, you would expect that God would give us uh, some at least incidental details about a close neighbor to the nation of Israel, wouldn't you? If you believe, as we do very firmly, that the Bible is a solid and premier book of history. It's not made up. It's real. These are real people who lived real lives, who were the progenitors of real nations and uh, the nations that then appear throughout biblical history. In fact, if you uh, were to look like I did carefully at the uses of Edom in the Scripture, I didn't count how many because there are dozens and dozens of them, but we see uh, Edom appear in Genesis in uh, Exodus, and Numbers, in the Psalms, in all of uh, Samuel, Kings, Chronicles, Daniel, Joel, Ezekiel, Jeremiah, Lamentations, Isaiah, they're everywhere. For example, uh, Edom is mentioned first in chapter 25 when he was born. You know why he got his name? His name came from him being red and hairy when he was born, and from trading his birthright for some red stew. And so they called him Red. You've heard of somebody, you think, when you, when you think of somebody called Red, where do you think? Texas, probably, right? Somebody from, somebody named Red's got to be from Texas, maybe. Uh, but that's, that's his name. That's, that's what Edom means. That's what Esau, uh, who it was. So we use that same nickname for somebody maybe with red hair or a ruddy complexion, which is often associated with working outdoors. But he was Red, Edom. Uh, does not appear again in Genesis, only once in Exodus in the Song of Moses. I'll let you look at the notes there about that. In Numbers 20, 400 years after Edom, I say Edom or Esau, was alive, the nation of his people refused Israel the simple kindness of passing through their territory on the king's highway. Uh, that's kind of unnecessarily mean, wouldn't you think? If Moses gave you his word that he was just going to go on the king's highway, we'll buy your water, we're not going to mess with anything that's yours. Shouldn't you believe him? I would hope so. But they would not let them pass through their land to shorten their journey, even if Israel paid for the things that they borrowed, so to speak. And this was a very discouraging detour for the people because they had to go the long way around. Do you like going the long way around? You don't like going the long way around when you're in your car going 70 miles an hour. Imagine you're walking around nations to get to your homeland. Oh, that's a very discouraging thing. Psalm 137 calls to memory when Edom gloated over the destruction of Jerusalem. You can imagine them as people who did not like their neighbor gloating when Israel was destroyed. That's not a good thing they did, but that's a thing that they did do. In Ezekiel, 
God prophesies deep judgment against the nation of Israel, uh, against the nation of Edom, rather, for taking the land of Israel as their own. They stole the land. They, they took possession of it. It didn't belong to them. They should have known better from their forefather, Esau, who moved away to get away from his brother in the promised land. Amos predicted that Edom would be judged by God for their transgressions. They themselves were the victims of persecution by the Moabites, Amos chapter 2. And uh, let me just uh, highlight Amos 9 uh, for you. And uh, if you can find it, you'll be doing well. It's before Obadiah, Hosea, Joel, Amos. Amos chapter 9 seems very obscure, doesn't it? But it's not so obscure if you know your minor prophets like you know your sports statistics or any other favorite thing that you have, you know, your favorite cars and all of that stuff. You should probably know Amos pretty well too. Amos uh, chapter 9 and verse 12 says that they may possess... Well, let me go back to verse 11. On that day I will raise up the tabernacle of David which has fallen down and repair its damages. I will raise up its ruins and rebuild it as in the days of old that they may possess the remnant of Edom and all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord who does this thing. This is going to be in the future kingdom, of which we spoke much yesterday in our funeral service for for Joan. Um, But James uses this prophecy in Acts chapter 15 to show that if God is going to raise up the tabernacle of David and he's going to reach out to the people of Edom and possess the remnant of those people, and all the Gentiles who are called by my name, Peter or, uh, James says, isn't it reasonable to see that God is calling out for himself a people from among the Gentiles today? Because there were Jews who said, wait a minute, God can't be reaching out to Gentiles. And, and James says, now wait a minute, don't make such a quick conclusion. Back in Amos, friends, if you read your minor prophets, you would know God promised to call out for himself a people for his name among the Gentiles, and even to possess the remnant of Edom. And then we see Edom in the book of Obadiah. The whole book of Obadiah is a judgment against Edom. Malachi also mentions that God loved Jacob, but in relative terms he hated Esau because the way Edom treated Israel and their unrepentant evil doing that left them outside of God's favor. Well, I've mentioned other places where Edom is mentioned as well, but the Bible is a book of history, and it has real history in it. Now, Edom's ancestral territory included uh, Mount Seir. Did you see that in verse number 9, the father of the Edomites uh, in Mount Seir? Or verse 8, Esau dwelt at Mount Seir. Mount Seir is a, in part of a mountain range that is south of the Dead Sea in modern-day southwest Jordan. Do you know, have you ever heard of the famous city called Petra? Petra is there in that place, one of, obviously one of the places in that whole territory. It too, if you remember seeing pictures of Petra in certain lights, it looks red because of the red sandstone characteristic of that area. Red again, Edom, comes up, very fitting. 
So we'll leave chapter 36 behind at this point and uh, let you read uh, those long lists of names, but we, I think, have introduced it sufficiently so that you're familiar when you're reading your Bible all the way through and you run into Edom, you'll know what it's talking about. It's talking about the descendants of Esau who live at Mount Seir and in that surrounding area south of the Dead Sea. Now we turn our attention to chapter 37. 37 really uh, begins uh, a new section of the book. Uh, very often uh, commentators and outliners like myself have, have noted the, the change in topic, the change in focus here uh, away from the family line leading up to Jacob and the birth of his children. Now we're going to focus in on one particular young man in that family and the way God used him in the salvation or rescue of that family from destruction. And uh, we see this word in verse 2. This is the history of Jacob. And then it says Joseph. So it's getting into the story of Joseph. Let's start in verse 1. Now Jacob dwelled in the land where his father was a stranger, in the land of Canaan. This is the history of Jacob. Joseph, being 17 years old, was feeding the flock with his brothers. Now, the fact that he's 17 is interesting, not only because I have a 17-year-old, and uh, some of you are nigh to that age yourselves, but also because he was born, if you think about the chronology, remember that uh, Jacob uh, had, he, he, he married, Le- well, kind of got married to Leah, got married to her, I'll say it that way, then Rachel, and then have, started having children, and all the kids are listed there in, in chapter whatever it is, back a few chapters, and, and, uh, and finally Joseph uh, is born. Well, not finally, because Benjamin is finally, but Joseph at that time was. And it appears that he was born near to the end of the 14-year period in which uh, Jacob was with Laban. And I say 14 years because at that point he wanted to leave, Jacob did, but then got convinced to stay for another six years. And so he was there for a total of 20. But if Joseph was born toward the end of the 14, grew grew for his first six years, his dad was still in Haran and Padan Aram working for Laban, then they moved. So say that they moved back around the time he was seven. So now he's 17, and what? So that was about 10 years that they've been in the land. By doing the simple math there, he was 17 years old, and he was feeding the flock with his older brothers. And the lad was with the sons of Bilhah and the sons of Zilpah, his father's wives, and Joseph brought a bad report of them to his father. Well, no brothers like that, do they? A tattletale. So, uh, and then it adds this. Now Israel loved Joseph more than all his children because he was the son of his old age, son of Rachel too, by the way, and, and he made him a tunic of many colors. So interesting that the text tells us there's this antagonistic relationship between the youngest and the others. It tells us that uh, his father had held him as a favorite Do you remember favoritism from before? Yeah, Jacob and Esau were favorites respectively of their parents, of their mother and father. And so here it is passing down this favoritism yet again. And favoritism causes, well, it shouldn't cause sinful reactions, should it? But being that we're in a sinful 
world with sinners all around, what do you expect? There are going to be bad reactions to favoritism. There shouldn't be that kind of favoritism, and there shouldn't be bad reactions to it if there is that kind of favoritism. But uh, in this case, the brothers saw, verse number four, that their father loved him more than all his brothers. They hated him and could not speak peaceably to him. That's too bad. Family dysfunction. Now, Joseph had a dream, and he told it to his brothers. Oh, by the way, this tunic that he made him, I mean, the fact that the Bible calls it out must mean that it was fairly notable. You know, it wasn't just that he went to the local superstore and bought a coat that happened to have many colors to it. This was probably quite expensive to make, to, to have somebody in his family who was a, 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 you know, skilled with dyeing colors uh, into fabric and sewing it together and all of that. This was a rich gift. It was not something that he gave to all of his sons. So Joseph had a dream, verse 5, and he told it to his brothers, and they hated him even more. So he said to them, Please hear this dream which I have dreamed. There we were, binding sheaves in the field. Then behold, my sheaf arose and also stood upright. And indeed, your sheaves stood all around and bowed down to my sheaf. And his brothers said to him, Shall you indeed reign over us? Or shall you indeed have dominion over us? So they hated him even more for his dreams and for his words. Then he dreamed still another dream and told it to his brothers and said, Look, I have dreamed another dream. And this time the sun, the moon, and the eleven stars bowed down to me. So he told it to his father and his brothers, and his father rebuked him and said to him, What is this dream that you have dreamed? Shall your mother and I and your brothers indeed come to bow down to the earth before you? And his brothers envied him, but his father kept the matter in mind." So the first part of this chapter is all about Joseph being hated. His brothers were angry with him. They hated him. They were envious. And we're going to find out that they were also greedy for money because they ended up selling him. So there are four reasons why they hated him. He brought a bad report. He was the favorite of his, of his father who gave him a very expensive gift. He had a dream that his brothers would bow down to him. And then he had another dream that his father, mother, and brothers would bow down to him, which even brought a rebuke from his dad. Uh, They saw him as a tattletale, arrogant father's pet, and they couldn't stand the favoritism that was being shown to him. Now, the fact that he had these two dreams should not um, cause us to... uh, you know, sit here and think, well, the dreams that I have could be revelatory dreams from God. These are exceedingly rare. We have them recorded in Scripture because they're rare, and because they were special events. Joseph had several of these. You'll see Daniel was involved in dreams and interpretation of dreams. Uh, but, and, and, and God gave dreams a, cu- a couple of times to uh, people outside of his family of faith, like Pharaoh, remember, and, and Nebuchadnezzar. Uh, And those dreams were significant to the leadership of their large empires. And uh, God does that, but not not on any kind of regular basis, nor can we say. What what do dreams mean? Dreams typically mean 
these are the things that you're thinking about that are troubling you, uh, that are generated because you're sick. You know, you have strange dreams when you have a fever and that sort of thing, much more kind of pedestrian or mundane explanations than uh, uh, information coming from heaven. So very rarely in history does God reveal his plans to, to people. And he's revealed all of his plans right here in the book, so we don't need to dream about that. Now, we're going to read and find out later that the dreams turned out to be true, but the brothers didn't understand this. They didn't understand what the Lord was showing them through the dream or even that the Lord was behind the dream. I mean, if, if Joseph came to them and said, look, God told me, what are they going to say? Yeah, right, God told you. You're just a foolish child. And would to God that they would have just treated him like, you know, he had uh, grandiose visions of boyish thinking instead of treating him the way that they did, just kind of write him off. But they, they didn't do that because they didn't understand what God was saying. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 14 says that the natural man does not receive the things of the Spirit of God. And it's not that they couldn't understand what he was telling them in this sense. They knew that the metaphor of the dream had to do with Joseph being over his brothers. They were bowing down to him. They got the reigning or royalty kind of feature of it, but they could have no understanding of how God could take a punk 17-year-old and elevate him to the point where they were below him. They were his elders. He needed to respect them, not the other way around. So although they understood the words of the prophecy, they didn't understand the significance of it. And that is an important distinction that we should make sure that we understand. Unbelievers can understand much of the Bible in the first way that I've just said. They can understand the words. They can understand that we believe that Jesus died for sinners, but they have no connection to the reality of that because either A, they say, oh, God told you? Yeah, right. Or they look at it and say it's foolishness. Yeah, I understand the words that you're saying, but that's not how it really is. You know, really it is, you know, God doesn't exist. He's a figment of your imagination or he's going to save everybody or there's going to be no eternal consequences to the way that we live this life or whatever, just stuff made up out of their own heads because they don't receive the things of the Spirit of God. In a consequence, the brothers hated and envied Joseph. But notice there's a slightly different response in verse uh, 11. His father was a little wiser about the matter. And he said, okay, I'm going to hold on. I'm not going to jump to conclusions here fully. I'm going to pause and I'm going to keep the matter in mind. There's another person in the Bible who did this. Do you know who it was? Mary, when the shepherds came, when all these things happened regarding her son who was born, it says that Mary kept these things, Luke 2.19, and pondered them in her heart. Best for us to think before we outburst with some rebuke or some words that we'll later have to eat. Joseph was hated. Joseph was then thrown into a pit in verse number 12. And it just floors me that brothers can do this to each other. Then his brothers went to feed their flocks, father's flock in Shechem. And Israel said to Joseph, Are not your brothers feeding the flock in Shechem? Come, I will send you to them. So he said to him, Here I am. 
And he said, please go and see if it is well with your brothers, with the flocks, and bring back word to me. So this wasn't like they went out one day and then they were supposed to come back the next day. This was like a long journey. They were going away. They, they kind of operated on time in a different scale than we do. You know, instant text messages and all that, not a thing. Okay, go and, and find out. Go to Hebron. And so he's wandering around there trying to find his brothers. Verse 15, somebody found him and, and the man asked him, what are you seeking? In verse 16, I'm seeking my brothers. Please tell me where they're feeding their flocks. And the man said to them, they have departed from here for I heard them say, let us go to Dothan. So Joseph went after his brothers and found them in Dothan. Now, from, from uh, where they were to Dothan, I think if I calculated for the correct endpoints on this, 60 miles. So this is a long journey uh, for, for that time period. So they have, uh, they've departed, they go to Dothan. So when they saw him afar off, even before he came near them, they conspired against him to kill him. Then they said to one another, look, this dreamer is coming. Come, therefore, let us now kill him and cast him into some pit. And we shall say some wild beast has devoured him. We shall see what will become of his dreams. <laughs> Little did they know that by doing what they were doing, they were causing the fulfillment of his dreams. But Reuben heard it and he delivered him out of their hands and said, let us not kill him. Okay, a little voice of sanity here. And Reuben said to them, Shed no blood, but cast him into this pit which is in the wilderness, and do not lay a hand on him, that he might deliver him out of their hands and bring him back to his father. So a good plan, sort of. Uh, so it came to pass when Joseph had come to his brothers that they stripped Joseph of his tunic, the tunic of many colors that was on him, and they took him and cast him into a pit, and the pit was empty. There was no water in it. And they sat down to eat a meal. Now talk about a seared conscience. Wouldn't bother you at all? that you're basically trying to kill your brother by leaving him in a pit. So they sat down to eat. They lifted up their eyes and looked. And there was a company of Ishmaelites coming from Gilead with their camels bearing spices, balm and myrrh on their way to trade them down in Egypt. So the Judah said to his brothers, What profit is there if we kill our brother and conceal his blood? Come, let us sell him and then conceal his blood, so to speak, to the Ishmaelites. And let not our hand be upon him, for he is our brother and our flesh." And his brothers listened. Remember, I, I kind of commended Judah last time. I said, you know, all the ones ahead, Reuben and Simeon and Levi ahead of him in the order kind of goofed up really badly. Well, <clears throat> Judah's not doing a whole lot better here, is he? Which just goes to show that God sets his favor on sinners and uses them. Judah, for example, the, the lawgiver came out of Judah, the Messiah as well, the lion of the tribe of Judah. God's favor is upon people who are sinners and who do terrible things. So he hatches this plan. The Midianite traders are with them, this Ishmaelite group. They, trade, they pass by, so they pulled him up out of the pit, sold him to the Ishmaelites for 20 shekels of silver, and they took Joseph to Egypt. Now, what is, does 20 shekels strike you uh, as an interesting number? How much would you sell a guy for a servant in the Old Testament? 30 pieces of silver. They didn't even get 30 for him. And it must have been a bargain basement price. Um, 20. Think of it. How many, how many of the brothers were involved in this? Yeah, but so they, there was 11, and then there was minus the one that they were selling, so 10. 
Reuben was kind of on the out, but let's just suppose that they split the money evenly. They get two shekels apiece. I mean, what's the point? You know, just ridiculous what they were doing. But that's what they did, 20 shekels of silver. Um, So then Reuben returns, and indeed Joseph was not there, and he tore his clothes. Now, the strange thing is, at least at this time, it doesn't say that the other brothers told Reuben what they did. They just, he just thought that, that his, his younger brother had disappeared. Uh-oh, so now what? So whether he knew or not what the, the, about the sale doesn't really matter a whole lot. So they took Joseph's tunic. They've got to cover up now what's happened. So they killed a kid of the goats and dipped the tunic in the blood. And they sent that tunic to their father and said, we've found this. Do you know whether it is your son's tunic or not? Give me a break. Another whole deception going on here. Um, Did you notice that an animal died because of their sin? Just pointing that out. So, unfortunately, there was no DNA testing available to test that blood. Jacob had no clue. charade went on for years. In fact, about 20 years, these brothers colluded to hide from their father and tell him that Joseph, his son, one of his favorites, was dead. The Bible says to lie not to one another, doesn't it? Lie not to one another. Lie not to one another. Don't lie to each other. Don't lie to me. I shall not lie to you. The scriptures are clear. We cannot do that. Meanwhile, Joseph was sold as a slave. Let's read on, finish the chapter. Um, So he recognized it, the, the tunic, it's my son's tunic. A wild beast has devoured him. Without doubt, Joseph is torn to pieces. Then Jacob tore his clothes, put sackcloth on his waist, and mourned for his son many days. Useless mourning. Why put an old man through that kind of grief? And all his sons and his daughters arose to comfort him, but he refused to be comforted and said, For I shall go down into the grave to my son in mourning. Thus his father wept for him. Now the Midianites had sold him in Egypt to Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh and the captain of the guard. Notice, please, that the scriptures are clear that man-stealing, kidnapping, and selling into slavery is a capital offense. A capital offense. Those who did that at any time in world history should have been subject to the death penalty. Obviously, that's not the case in a sinful world, but it should be. Now, I'm going to jump ahead just a little bit because we're familiar with how the situation turns out, aren't we? God allowed this evil to bring good into the world and to save his people from the famine that would come in a few short chapters. This is an illustration that we can use for what we call the greater good theodicy. That is a justification for or reasoning why God does what he does. That's what a theodicy is. T-H-E-O-D-I-C-Y comes from thea and dikaiosa, right? A justification of God. It's not that God needs to be justified, my friends. But what, it's say, what this idea is philosophically and theologically is, 
the explanation of why God allows evil in the world. You've thought about that, certainly, haven't you? Well, one answer that theologians and philosophers offer is that God permits evil to allow a greater good to come about out of that evil. On, On the face of things, so we know how it turned out, how that evil was used and how Joseph was there in Egypt and rose to power and was able to save his family. On the face of things, there seems to be no good way to accomplish sending Joseph to Egypt without sin. I mean, I'm sure you can concoct a situation, okay? But the reality is Joseph did not probably want to leave his father. He was the favorite. You know, he's in this clan. It's wealthy. It's, everything's provided for him. It's good. Uh, you know, close family ties. He was not going to leave his dad voluntarily. Even if we concocted a situation where he decided to leave to Egypt on some, with some non-sinful or evil background or, or circumstances, it seems unlikely that he would have encountered the same people in the same way and, and, and in prison and, and, and heard these dreams and interpreted them and be raised to, to stand before Pharaoh and then be second in command of Egypt. Very unlikely that that would have occurred. And after all that was done, if your clever, non-evil, inclusive circumstances got Joseph to Egypt and got him where he was, you would still lose one important feature of the story, and that is how God brings good out of evil. See? If you eliminated that part of the story, you'd be eliminating the whole last part of Genesis from 37 to 50. Saves 38, which is on a different subject. God wants us to learn from Joseph's experience. Over the centuries of human existence, people have noticed other situations in which God has arranged certain things, allowed bad things to happen, and then in turn brought some good thing out of it. People struggle with the existence of evil, the problems of evil in the world. But for some reason, in God's infinite, listen, infinite wisdom, expansive knowledge so much that we can't even describe what it is. He knows everything, omniscient, omnisapient, omnipotent. With all of that, God, I'll say figured, that evil had to be permitted in order for some good things to come about. The highest example of this is the cross of Jesus Christ, the worst injustice ever perpetrated upon a human being resulted in the good of the salvation of millions of souls, including yours and mine, if you're a faithful follower of Christ. And we thank him for that. So, yes, we can see how God does bring greater good sometimes out of very bad evil. And I pray that you will pause and not jump to conclusions, but you'll say, Maybe God knows more than I do. do. Maybe God is a little smarter than I am and has figured this thing out from beginning to end in a way that I simply cannot do. That would be a good humble approach before you go complaining that God permitted you to freely choose to do evil.
Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your kindness in allowing us to see the word today and despite this terrible circumstance of Joseph and his brothers, to begin to see the seeds laid, the foundation laid for what will come in the future chapters here in Genesis and be confirmed in our, in our trust in you that you do know what you're doing. We are very simple-minded and not very wise. And we thank you that we can have your word to teach us. In Jesus' name, amen.